Thank you so much, John and Trudy. Before I forget um, to mention this, about a year ago, um, we did what Christians do to try to celebrate. We bought sparkling cider, um, and we were anticipating that we would close on this building a lot sooner, and uh, so since we've had to wait you know, quite a long time, in a year, uh, we have some aged sparkling cider we'll be serving <laughs> following, the, following the service down the, down the hall just to celebrate maybe a, a brief time of prayer and thanksgiving to the Lord. So you're all invited to that. I trust it hasn't turned into vinegar or anything worse. So we'll, uh, uh, the, the expiration date says 2024, so just so you know, it should be, should be okay. Um, Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. With God's help this morning, I intend to speak to you about the topic, theological doctrine of justification. I intend to speak to you about it simply because it's the next section in the book of Galatians as we work through it. And it will actually occupy quite a bit of our time for the next several weeks as we work through this section of Galatians. But more importantly, the reason why this comes up is because the next section in Galatians unfolds what Paul refers to in Galatians 2 verse 14 as the truth of the gospel. This subject of justification is the essence and substance of the gospel. It is the essence of the good news that we believe. Martin Luther wrote regarding justification, This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. End quote. Not because Martin Luther says so, but because the scriptures hold it out to us as a doctrine of premier importance, we need to understand justification. It's shown to be important in that it functions as the real theological foundation of the argument that Paul is building in the book of Galatians. So far, in a sense, Paul's arguments have been a bit anecdotal. He's been recounting his experience with Jerusalem, his travels, his ministry as an apostle, his encounter with Peter at Antioch, and now... He digs down into the theological substance of what he is telling the Galatians to believe and conform to. And the doctrine that he holds out is the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Galatians chapter 2, let's read verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ 
and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. Father, we ask that these important truths in your word would be applied by your spirit to our heart, that we might believe them and live by them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a certain urgency to this doctrine of justification by faith, which I realize I haven't defined for you yet, but there's an urgency to it when you understand certain truths. They're very simple truths. The first one is the greatness of God. When you understand that truth, the urgency of this doctrine of justification by faith rises to the surface very quickly. It should hopefully come as no surprise to you that God is great. He's greater than, in a sense, our wildest imaginations. We cannot really perceive in our hearts how truly great, infinite, powerful, and awesome God is. I think one of the most powerful descriptions of the greatness of God is found in Isaiah chapter 40. You're welcome to turn there. Isaiah chapter 40. Beginning in verse 12. This is referring to God. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. We fear the nations. We look at them as the most powerful things we, they, we know with their war capabilities, political capacities. But to our great God, they are like a drop from a bucket and nothing more. They are accounted as dust on the scales. God is great. He is superior to every nation that has ever been on this planet. That's the first truth that helps us understand the urgency of justification by faith alone. It is the greatness of God. Keep that in mind. The second is the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 12, describes the judgment of God. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This is the judgment of God. It is so great that when the judgment throne comes, earth and sky flee. It is such a terrifying moment as the dead are raised and their lives are called to account before the great God. No one will be left standing. All will bow. Psalm 7 verse 11 declares, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. When I read that verse a number of years ago as I was just a new Christian, it gripped me. It still grips me. The idea that there is a righteous judge out there, the same judge who is going to be seated on that throne and the dead are raised and they are called to account before that judge and he is righteous. He has no iniquity in him. He does not take bribes. He does not look the other way. He does not sweep things under the rug. He is great and he has all power because the nations are counted as dust before him. And one day, you and I will stand before that God. And he is a righteous judge. And he is not just a righteous judge. He is also a judge who feels indignation every day. It goes on in Psalm 7 to say that he has wet his sword. And he is ready to strike his blow of judgment against the wicked. This great, powerful, holy, pure, intrinsically righteous God will bring about judgment. And there will come a day when our lives are called to account. And the great question is, as you stand before this great God, on what basis will you find acceptance with him? That is the great question. And that is the great doctrine of justification by faith and where it gives us hope. I want to leave you this morning understanding that the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ is that the only way anyone in the world is declared righteous in God's presence is through trusting in Jesus Christ for that very righteousness that you need. That's justification by faith. Our text in Galatians is not a difficult one. It really brings out three concepts for us that we will work our way through. It brings out the concept of justification. It brings out the concept of works of the law. And it brings out the concept of faith in Jesus Christ. Those are really the three ideas that are being promoted to us, and we want to understand each one of them. So let's go through, of them one, through each of them one at a time. First, justification. It says in verse 16 of Galatians 2, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. John Stott writes regarding justification, nobody has understood Christianity who does not understand this word, justification. It is such a central word that if you don't understand at least the concept, even if you can't define it at the drop of a hat, if you don't understand the concept of this, you do not understand the essence of the gospel and the essence of Christianity. It's the concept that this word represents that is so important to us. 
We're not so much interested in just breaking out this word and giving it necessarily a dictionary definition. We want to see how it's used in context, why it is important, and what it means. This word clearly has substance to Paul's argument here, and these, just these two verses, actually one verse, verse 16, justified is used three times. Notice he says, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And he goes on to say, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times in one sentence. You don't have to be a scholar to understand Paul wants you to get justification. He thinks this is important. It's a pivotal moment in the letter. Paul is transitioning here from again, laying out some of his travels, some of his arguments that are based on his experience, to now the theological truths that he's trying to convince the Galatians of. The Galatians are experiencing a time of peril because false teachers have come among them that are teaching them that it's great to trust in Jesus Christ, but you also have to keep the law to be saved. That is an anti-gospel message. And so Paul is letting the Galatians know not to believe that and to let them know what, it, what the true gospel is. And the true gospel really comes to the core of justification and how that is applied to, a, to the sinner. So what does justification mean? Generally, there have been two main ideas about what it means. One meaning is to make righteous. To make righteous. This concept and that definition of justification is generally associated with the Roman Catholic understanding of justification. It is the idea that justification is the application of righteousness into the sinner so that they not only are declared righteous, actually they're not declared righteous, they are given righteousness intrinsically to them. There's more to it than that, but simply put, it is the infusion of righteousness into you so that it is what you are. You are made righteous. The second meaning, and I think the right meaning, is to declare righteous. It's more of a legal term. It is the idea of a courtroom where someone comes in before a judge and the judge pronounces a sentence on them and says, you are right. Or you are righteous. It's a judicial meaning. To declare right. To declare something. It's usually associated also being connected with someone so that what is theirs becomes yours in a sense. And this is the idea of imputation. Imputation is a big theological word that basically means what is not yours is applied to you. It happens to all of us through Adam. Adam sinned in the garden, and because he sinned, his sin, you being a descendant of Adam, is applied to you. His guilt is applied to you, the imputation of his guilt. There's another way it happens is through Christ, Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made 
righteous. It is the application of righteousness to you, Christ's righteousness. Now, it's not so important to get caught up in the semantics of it, even though there's a big difference between the idea of infusing righteousness and imputing righteousness. I think the big deal is just understanding some of the key examples of justification. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and I think this will bring clarity to the idea. Romans 8, verse 33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. According to that verse, justification is an act of God. It says it is God who justifies. It's God who does it. He is the one who makes this declaration, who declares right. And it happens in the context of if a charge is brought against you. Again, this is the kind of courtroom imagery where you are put on trial and someone brings up a charge against you, something you are guilty for. And the question is asked, who can do that against God's elect? Who can bring a charge against God's elect that will stick? And the answer to that is effectively nobody. Why? Because it is God who justifies. God who declares that you are righteous. And so the charges against you, whether they're brought by another man or Satan himself, do not stick because God has done something. He has declared you to be righteous. He has justified you. The opposite of this is brought up in verse 34. You see it there. It says, Who is to condemn? The opposite of justification is condemnation. It is to enter that courtroom, to have somebody bring a charge against you, and for that charge to stick, and the judge pronounces sentencing and says, you are condemned. You're guilty. So justification, then, is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is, of course, to be found guilty in the face of and face the punishment for your guilt. Justification is to be found innocent, to be found righteous. Justification then means that no charge can be brought against you because you have been declared innocent by God, and therefore no condemnation can come against you. Justification is to be declared not guilty by God. It means you have no condemnation from him. And that's exactly what 8.1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I realize a lot of us are familiar with this concept. But don't let the significance of it be lost on you. There are some who are justified by God. And that means that one day you will get to stand fully in the presence of the Almighty God, who is great and who is judge. And he will look at you as an individual 
and declare that you are innocent. And he, that means that you are now free to enjoy all of the presence of God, all of his goodness, greatness, majesty. You are not kicked out of his kingdom. You are welcome to live with him because you are innocent and you are declared righteous. And there is no one who gets to live in God's kingdom who is not righteous. And so you get welcomed to live with this God. There's a great picture in a very popular systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. And it pictures justification simply like this. It has a, a circle with a bunch of minuses in it that indicate your guilt because we know that we are all sinners. And it draws a little arrow and then it shows another circle that shows nothing in there. It's just white. And it shows you're not guilty. That's justification. But not only that, then it takes this white circle that is empty and shows innocence, and it draws another one to another circle that has a bunch of pluses in it. It shows not only, shows not only are you considered innocent, but not, you, now you are considered righteous. The presence of righteousness is applied to you so that you can dwell in God's kingdom. Remember, this is God who justifies. It's God who does it. This is not like going out and playing some pickup basketball and the 40-year-old guy who plays basketball once a month sees you make a shot and says, hey, that's a great shot. And he's, in a sense, justified you. He's declared you a right basketball player. That's not that significant for that guy to declare that about you. But if you go out and play a round of golf with the world's number one golf player on the hardest course in the world, and at the end of that round of golf, the professional golfer says, that is the best round of golf I've ever seen in my life. That compliment will stick a little bit more. You've been justified by him. You've been, in a sense, vindicated, declared right by him. We try to justify ourselves all the time. I'm a pretty good person. I had a pretty good week. I didn't swear as much this week as I did last week. I did a great job. Other people might even pat you on the back and say, hey, you're a great worker. You did so good. And we justify ourselves. We declare ourselves right all the time. Justification, according to the Bible, however, is God declaring you right. This is a lot more substantial than me declaring you right, you declaring yourself right, some basketball player saying, nice shot, some golfer saying, great round of golf. This is God of the heavens declaring you to be right, and his standard is absolute perfection. This is justification. Now, we might think that to have no guilt before God would primarily come because you're not guilty. That might be the way that we would think about it. In order to be declared innocent by God, you would expect that would happen because you are actually innocent. That's what a lot of people think. A lot of people think that on the day of judgment, they will be good with God because they were good enough. 
and they think that their good enoughness is good enough with God. That will do it. We pat ourselves on the back. We compliment ourselves. We don't think we're as bad as we actually are. We think that we're better than we actually are. And we think that will be good enough before God on the day of judgment. The problem is when you see the world that way and you see your life that way, you don't realize the significance of the problem. I heard a preacher recently say, as he looked out on his audience, he said, I can tell you guys are sinners just by looking at you. (laughs) From the soles of your feet to the top of your head, you are full of sin. That's from Isaiah. That's not so much from that preacher. It is the declaration of God that through and through we are sinners. Through and through we are guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we've worshipped the creature rather than the creator. That is the essence of sin. We've exchanged God for our own pleasures. And one day, we stand before God, and he opens us up like a can of tuna fish, and he finds out what's inside. And it's rotten. We would think that to be declared righteous by God would require us to be righteous. But the problem is, we're not righteous. And so how can we be declared righteous? And that's the great truth of justification. And it will be amped up as we keep going through this text. Because the question is, how will you be justified How will you be accepted? How will you be vindicated before God? How will you ever stand before him innocent? How will God declare you righteous? On what basis will that happen? Let me give you an answer that doesn't make that happen. Works of the law is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. He couldn't say it any clearer. Verse 15 of Galatians 2, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. You will not stand before God innocent and accepted before him on the basis of works of the law. You will not find yourself accepted before God on the basis of doing the very things that he commanded. That's a staggering thing. Don't lose sight of this. The law is the very thing that God gave Israel. It was a revelation of God's righteous standard himself to the Israelites and commanded them to keep it. And Paul is now saying, no one is justified by works of the law by doing the very things that God commands. On the day of judgment, no one will stand before God pleading their case and being found innocent on the basis of having done what he commanded in the Old Testament. Not a single soul. No man, no woman. It says, without qualification and without need to clarify, 
a person is not justified by works of the law. You don't need a dictionary for that. You don't need a degree to understand that. You just need open ears and an open heart. There are two components of this, works and law. The context here is, starts in verse 11 when Paul begins to rebuke Peter. Peter came to Antioch, and while in Antioch he had been eating with Gentiles, and then certain men came from Jerusalem, and after that, Peter stopped eating with Gentiles. And the implication was that the Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to be saved, in order to have fellowship. That was the implication. And so Paul rebukes Peter, and he says in verse 14 of Galatians 2, I said to Cephas, that's Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul is pointing out to Peter that Peter has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And when he did that, he abandoned any hope that the law would save him. And so Paul, in a sense, is saying Peter is living like a Gentile. He's living without the law as the standard of his righteousness. And yet now Peter is requiring that Gentiles live like Jews, even though Peter, is a Jew, is living like a Gentile. And so now he goes on in verse 15 and says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul acknowledges the natural biological way that they have been born. They've been born Jews. They've been given the law. And the idea within Judaism would be the privilege of being born into a law-keeping culture. And they would look at everyone else outside as kind of inferior because they don't have the law of God. And so they're called sinners. A couple of examples of this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes to the Gentile Ephesians, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, without having no hope and without God in the world. They're looked down upon, Gentiles were. They didn't have the law. You can also see this concept in Luke 7. If you recall the story when Jesus is at a Pharisee's home and a woman comes to anoint Jesus' feet with oil. And in the description of this woman, in Luke chapter 7, verse 37, it says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... And then when the Pharisee sees this woman, he says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Sinner is just a category in this context for a group of people who didn't keep the law. And Paul is saying in verse 15 that we Jews, we who have the law, who are not born as Gentile sinners, we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law. One author puts it this way. Paul is not arguing 
that Gentiles should be included with Jews in the people of God. He is arguing, rather, that Jews should be included with Gentiles in the mass of ordinary humanity. Jews are sinners just like the Gentiles, with the radical implication that follows. Their obedience to the covenant stipulations cannot put them right with God. Only a total reliance on Christ by faith can do so. Paul is saying here, amazingly enough, not that Gentiles should be included with Jews by works of the law, but that Jews should be included with Gentiles in the category of sinners. And the very simple reason for that is what we all know. Because every single human being has sinned. The works of the law are things that we attempt to do, if we just kind of broaden it out for a moment. They're things that we attempt to do to prove our righteousness before God. It can be anything that we are trying to do to base our justification on because of things that we have done. It could be that God, you think, is pleased with you because you didn't watch as much TV this week. It could be you thinking that God is more pleased with you today because you read your Bible. It could be you thinking God is more pleased with you today and considers you righteous because you prayed, because you attended church, because you wore the right clothes, because you didn't wear the wrong clothes, because you're not as bad as the person next to you. You could base your justification on the things that you do. You could be glad that you were a good husband today, or a good wife today, or a good mother, or a good father. Inversely, you could think that you have now failed, and God will never consider you righteous because you're a terrible husband today, or you're a terrible father, or a terrible wife, or a terrible mother, or a terrible friend, or just a terrible person. And you think, God will never accept me because I am a terrible person. We try to let the things that we do define our acceptance or rejection before God. And in one sense, it is right to think that what we do matters, but in another sense, in the context of our ultimate acceptance and vindication before God, we have another category altogether that we need to consider. The reason why works of the law fail to justify us is no mystery. There are so many illustrations that come uh, from the Garden of Eden, but consider just this one. God gave Adam and Eve great liberty. He said you can eat any tree, any of the fruit of the garden, except for one, just one. He gave them great liberty. He gave them one law, don't eat from this tree. Don't eat from this tree, that's it. One simple law, one single one. And you know what they did? They didn't keep that one. Why in the world would anyone think that when God gives 613 laws in the Mosaic law, that they will be justified on the basis of keeping those? When Adam and Eve couldn't even keep one law. How in the world do you think you're going to keep 613? 
The reason why no one is justified by works of the law is because nobody keeps the works of the law. No one keeps the law truly. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The reason why the works of the law fail to justify us is because we don't keep the law. We don't do it. And so we're left guilty, in a sense condemned, wondering how will we be accepted before God? How will we get there? Well, it's not our righteousness. If it's not our doing the law that gets us there, and yet you can still get there, and it needs to be on the basis of righteousness, then it must be somebody else's righteousness. Paul says in Philippians 3.9 about what he wants, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Something else is needed. It's a righteousness outside of yourself, a righteousness that is foreign to you, a righteousness not your own. And this is the third concept. Seeing justification, the works of the law. And the third concept Paul puts in here is faith in Jesus Christ. On what basis are you justified before God? Well, it's not on the basis of what you do. It's on the basis of what somebody else has done for you. It's on the basis of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 again. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. The great difference made in your life is whether you are trusting Christ or not. Many people, in a sense, believe Jesus even recently, Elon Musk, the world's richest man, indicated that he believed some of the things that Jesus said. He believed the ethical teachings of Jesus are true and good. And a lot of people have felt that way through history. There's things they like about Jesus. They believe him when he said certain things like, love your neighbor. But that's not faith in Christ. Faith in Christ demands more than just mental assent. It is the words of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the person of Jesus, all demand more than just assent that he is true. It demands that I desperately need this man. I need Jesus. Trust or faith, giving your full allegiance, commitment, your personal trust in Christ. It's more than just knowing something is true. It's staking your life on it. It's putting yourself in that mountain climbing harness and going up that cliff. Faith is clinging to that life preserver when you get tossed overboard. Faith is strapping on the parachute, 
jumping out of the airplane, pulling the ripcord. The problem with us, typically, is that we'll put on the parachute of Christ without taking off the parachute of works. And we jump out of the airplane and we try to pull both ripcords at the same time. And guess what happens? You plummet to the earth. The parachutes get tangled up and neither of them work. If you leave just the parachute of works on and you pull the ripcord, you'll find that your parachute is full of holes. It's been eaten by moths and worms and you plummet to the earth with increasing speed. So you take that thing off and you put on the parachute of Christ and you jump out of the airplane and you pull that ripcord and that will give you a safe landing. And that's it. You trust Christ and you trust him alone. This is why we say that you're justified by faith alone. It means that you're not trusting in your works. You're trusting in Christ. It is Christ our Savior that actually saves. Faith is declaring yourself empty of any hope in your own goodness and clinging to Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. So many illustrations of faith. It is the blind man calling out for Jesus to heal him. Faith is being called to follow Christ and you leave all to follow him. Faith is saying all is lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ as Lord. Faith is not trusting in your works. It is trusting in Christ. It's not trusting your parents. It is trusting in Christ. It's not trusting your goodness. It is trusting Christ. We've believed in Christ. So speaking of the person who's utterly bereft of hope in themselves, that they could possibly be justified before the great God and judge, it's looking to the crucified Savior and pleading your case, not on the basis of your righteousness, but on the basis of what Christ has done for you. The message is really clear. You don't trust in yourself, you trust in Christ. Are you trusting in Christ alone? Are you looking to him for all of your righteousness? Are you confident that when he went to the cross, he bore all of your sins? Your sins were put on him, imputed on him. And when you trust in him, God looks at Christ's righteousness and applies it to your account, and that's how you can be declared right before God. Are you trusting that? Or are you hanging on to some of your works? Are you, are you basing the way God accepts or rejects you based on how you did today as a mom or a dad or as a wife or a husband or as a student or as a worker? Or are you basing it on Christ? On what basis will you plead your case before God? We plead it on the basis of nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's it. You're justified, not by works of the law, but by believing in Jesus Christ. This raises, hopefully, a lot of questions for you. And so I hope that you'll continue thinking through these questions as we go through Galatians, because this topic is going to be front and center for the chapters to come. 
We thank the Lord for the way that he has mercy on sinners like us because on the basis of our works, we could never stand before him justified. But on the basis of Christ, we have hope. Let us pray. Father, our, our hearts would tell us that in order to be right before you, we have to be righteous in our works, We have to keep the law. We have to be innocent. But your word tells us, Father, so clearly that we're all guilty. And the only way that we can be justified before you is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would remind us of this uh, during the week as we're tempted to put our confidence in things other than Christ, even our own works, that you would remind us that all our confidence, all our trust needs to be in Christ. Remind us of what he's done for us. Lord, give us great joy that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that we don't have to fear judgment. Thank you, Father, that you've given us such a great promise and a great hope. We rejoice in this this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.